Uh, we are now going to deal with a historian's defense of Christianity. Why would we want to do this? Well, uh, Christianity is uniquely a historical religion. You say, come on, all religions are historical. If they didn't appear in history, we wouldn't know anything about them. Well, of course, in that sense, every religion is historical. Every belief system is historical because it's a product of human thought in uh, human history. But Christianity is a historical religion in a very special sense. Its truth depends upon certain historical facts. If certain historical facts are true, then Christianity is true. If certain historical facts are false, Christianity is false. Example, uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 56 AD, uh, this was uh, within a generation of the death of Christ, uh, wrote, uh, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. We've been deceiving others and deceiving ourselves. The fact of the matter is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is critical for the truth of Christianity. And the significance of this goes well beyond just uh, the issue that I've been uh, mentioning. Why? Because, everybody, in modern philosophy, efforts have been made to get philosophers for once in their lives to try to prove what they are presenting. Uh, the history of philosophy, sadly to say, is the history of uh, various uh, eminent thinkers presenting different worldviews. These worldviews uh, are presented from the time of the pre-Socratic philosophers right on uh, to the 20th century uh, to uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, Wittgenstein, uh, and others. And the fascinating thing is that these worldviews contradict each other. They contradict each other. It can't possibly be the case that Hegel's worldview uh, and the worldview of Thomas Aquinas could uh, coexist in the same universe. What does this mean? It means that all of these philosophies could be false, but they certainly cannot all be true. At the beginning of the 20th century, a movement in philosophy called the analytical philosophy movement stressed the fact that if we are going to clean up this ideological mess, the only way to do it is to develop criteria for verification, criteria for determining whether a given idea, a given system is true or false. We need to be able to confirm or to disconfirm ideas. The analytical philosophers talked about two kinds of propositions. Uh, one kind of proposition is purely analytical. Uh, it depends on axioms, and you deduce from these axioms and reach certain conclusions. You've had contact with this in plane geometry. Wasn't that fun? Yes. Uh, uh, where you started out with these axioms, and if you use them properly, you could put, thrill, thrill, at the end of your proof, QED, quod erat demonstrandum, which must be demonstrated in this fashion. All right? Now, uh, those systems are purely deductive. Purely deductive. They are like plane geometry, uh, pure mathematics, deductive logic, uh, but they don't deal with matters of fact. The analytical philosophers said, if you're going to deal with questions of fact, you're going to have to get off of your derriere. That's French for rear end. You're going to have to get off your rear end and get out into the world and examine the data. The only way to confirm or disconfirm factual assertions is by checking the way the world operates. There is, of course, a third kind of proposition besides the analytic and the synthetic, referring to the factual propositions. Uh, there are statements that are neither analytic nor synthetic. The analytical philosophers call those nonsensical statements or meaningless statements. 
These are statements that purport to tell you something about the world, about the universe, but in fact don't tell you anything. Uh, a physicist by the name of Wolfgang Pauli, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, wrote in the margin of a colleague's paper, this isn't right, it isn't even wrong. There's something worse than being wrong. It's making statements that have no uh, possibility of confirmation or disconfirmation. Now, if you look at the history of the philosophical tradition, and even worse, if you look at the world's religions and the cults, you will discover that 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of all of their assertions fall into the meaningless or nonsensical category. That is to say, there is no way even in principle of demonstrating them. Christianity is in an entirely different ballpark. Christianity puts itself at the disposal of evidence. And therefore, by the way, if you are uh, wondering what religion is true and you'd like to start investigating religions, for goodness sake, start with Christianity because at least you've got some factual matters that can be arbitrated. If you start with Taoism, huh, and nobody knows what the Tao is anyway, if you start with Taoism huh, uh, or you start with Christian science, Huh? Uh, there, is no, there is no pain, there is no evil. Uh, and so you start with this kind of thing, you're never going to get anywhere. There isn't any way to verify the stuff uh, that is being presented. So if you start with Christianity, if it shouldn't be true, at least you will have been able to eliminate it. But if it is true, and it's in contradiction with other worldviews, you're going to need to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe this is one of the reasons that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And maybe it also is the reason why the apostles preach that there is none other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is not possible to slosh all of these viewpoints together. They, they will not work. Uh, they contradict each other. And if Christianity has uh, a sufficient case for it, then that's the route to take. And it'll be the only route to take. Now, <laughs> the reason for this background is so that you will appreciate the historical evidences that I'm going to present to you this evening. Some of this stuff is fairly technical. All right. Uh, but the general principles that I'm going to set forth will not give anybody any problems whatsoever. What you should try to do is... Uh, definitely assimilate the principles and then try to pick up as much of the concrete factual support for these principles uh, as you possibly can. And it doesn't hurt to build a library of good apologetics books hmm? because you can't be expected to stuff it all into your noggin and when you are talking with non-Christians you surely uh, want to be able to refer them to materials that will help them. So uh, we advise you, if you possibly can, uh, to consider some of the books that are out there and available. Uh, I hope you're not like that fellow who went into the bookstore and the <coughs> bookstore uh, manager said, would you like to buy a book? And he said, no, I already have a book. <coughs> All right. This is the argument in outline. This is the... Uh, the pattern that we're going to be following tonight and tomorrow night. This argument has four uh, major considerations within it. Um, if you are Baptist, you can reduce this to a three-point sermon. <laughs> this is possible. I know how difficult it is for Baptists to encounter something that would have more than three points. Uh, so uh, if, if, this, if this is a real difficulty for you, uh, then you can assimilate two and three. You can put those together. But it's a little clearer if we take it as four points. First point, the documents of the New Testament are solid historical documents. The first point deals with the documents. Second point, 
in these documents, Jesus presents himself and is presented by those who had eyewitness contact with him as no less than God Almighty. Thirdly, the witnesses who give us this information within these documents are solid witnesses. And fourthly, there is attestation for the claims of Jesus that are made in these documents. And that attestation is uh, principally his resurrection from the dead. It is not limited to that. It also includes the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in him, and we'll be talking about those on Wednesday night when we deal with the authority of the entire Bible. So we have documents, Jesus' picture of himself, what the witnesses have to say within the documents, and the attestation, the resurrection. Yes, notice that there are subpoints under the first point. Under the documentary point, we talk about uh, the transmission of the documents, we talk about the internal evidence, and we talk about the external evidence. Uh, and uh, when we get to external evidence, we're going to be dealing with a couple of early uh, church fathers, uh, Papias and Apollocarp. But at this stage of the game, all I want you to do is to place between your two ears those four points, right? Documents, mm, picture of Jesus in the documents, the solidity of the witnesses, the, the, uh, the eyewitnesses, uh, the testimony, and finally, the attestation, the resurrection. We're going to be dealing, oddly enough, with the first two of these points tonight. And we're going to be dealing, oddly enough, with the third and fourth points tomorrow night. And the reason for the division is that when we come to the area of witnesses and testimony, we are in lawyers' territory. Lawyers are specialists in uh, witness evidence. And so if we want the best kind of analysis of uh, the eyewitnesses uh, possible, we're going to need to go to uh, the lawyers. Uh, and uh, by the way, uh, if neither history nor law happen to be your fields, uh, there's going to be a, a big thrill uh, when we come uh, to uh, the um, question of the resurrection because we're going to get into some philosophical and scientific stuff there. We are actually going to get into some uh, uh, stuff in the area of chemistry. Yes. The, <clears throat> so uh, this, this will just be wonderful for everyone. And tonight, tonight uh, we're going to get into a bit of art criticism. So uh, this will illustrate, and this is just a footnote, this will illustrate uh, the point made by the great apologist Edward John Carnell, there are as many apologetics as there are facts in the world. There are as many apologetics as there are facts in the world. Now, another consideration before we take up each of these. This is a logical argument. It starts with the records, and moves to the content of the records and the evidence for the truth of what's in the records. It is not necessarily the best psychological order for presenting this when you get into a discussion with an unbeliever. It's not a psychological sequence as much as it is a logical sequence. Uh, how, do you, how do you choose the order when you're talking with somebody uh, about the gospel? Well, of course, first of all, you present the gospel. There's no sense in trying to argue for something and the person isn't even clear as to what you're maintaining. You start with the gospel and then you let the non-Christian present his objections. <laughs> and then you take from this structure those elements which will answer the specific objection of the non-Christian. You do not give the non-Christian uh, objections. Life is messy enough already. You don't want to give people problems. Right? You, you, you want to deal with the problems they, in fact, have. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this means that very often uh, a discussion will go something like this. Um, you present the gospel, and the, the non-Christian says, wait a minute, the resurrection of, of, of Jesus from the dead? You've got to be kidding. Everybody knows miracles just don't happen. Ah, 
If he says that, you're going to be picking up on point four. The resurrection is ultimate proof. You're going to deal with that, right? Or if he says, uh, well, everybody knows that the gospel records were written by drunken monks in the 6th century. Hmm? <laughs> you are going to restrain yourself, you know, from throwing up. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you are going to go to the documentary considerations. Or if the person is a kind of, 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 of floating Unitarian and the person says, oh yes, oh yes, Jesus, Jesus is my ideal. Uh, uh, he would make a perfect scout master uh, for, for our community if he were here right at the moment. Uh, uh, then uh, evidently there is a serious problem uh, with this person's understanding of what Jesus said about himself and what the eyewitnesses said about him. So then you're at point two. Fair enough? But we're going to proceed in logical order because if the records are not sound, everything else falls apart. The records are fundamental. All right. Uh, By transmission, we mean whether the document has gotten to us in the same condition, essentially, as it was originally written. And on the transmissional test, there are... Uh, there's a branch of scholarship that deals specifically with this. It's called lower criticism or textual criticism. And the people in that area do this kind of thing for the documents of the classical world in general, and they do it, of course, for the New Testament. The foremost authority in this area in the 20th century was the principal librarian of the British Museum, Sir Frederick Kenyon, And uh, Kenyon summed up the situation in the quotation that I've included here. The New Testament text is far better attested than that of any other work of ancient literature. Its problems and its difficulties arise not from a deficiency of evidence, but from an excess of it. In the case of no work of Greek or Latin literature, do we possess manuscripts so plentiful in number or so near the date of composition. Now, that's pretty strong. That says that if you compare your knowledge of Greco-Roman antiquity through the documents of classical antiquity, you are not going to find that material as sound in terms of transmission as the New Testament. And I give you a chart here which will illustrate exactly that. Uh, This chart comes uh, from, of all places, uh, the Oxford Companion to Classical Texts. Uh, And uh, what this does is to give you major classical authors, um, people like Caesar, Livy, Plato, Tacitus, Thucydides, and so forth. Um, It reminds me of the story of the man who went into into the Greek tailor shop uh, with his uh, trousers over his arm, and the uh, the tailor said, Euripides? <laughs> and he replied, Eumenides. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> yes, that, that, by the way, is what killed vaudeville in the old days. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, if you look at this chart, you'll see that the average distance between the original writing of a classical text and the first complete copy we have is roughly 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Why is this? It's because it wasn't until the Italian Renaissance that many of these classical authors were uncovered. All right? So we don't have... uh, We don't have early texts that can be uh, taken right back to the time of authorship. Uh, One example of this is Catullus, the the Latin poet. I majored in classics at Cornell as an undergraduate, along with philosophy, and I spent an entire semester on Catullus. You you may wonder why I would do this. It's because he wrote erotic poetry. Uh, That's why, yes. Yes. A very interesting semester it was, yes. Uh, uh, in the case of Catullus, the distance is about 1,500 years, and we have all of Catullus in only two manuscripts, for goodness sake, one of which has subsequently been lost. 
And the professor never, never said a word about this. There we were, squeezing our genitive absolutes for all they were worth uh, in order to uh, get the meaning of the text. Uh, and uh, it could well be that the text was so corrupt that the poetry uh, didn't represent what Catullus had written at all. In the case of the New Testament, the four Gospels we have in their entirety in two manuscripts that are as early as the, the uh, four, end of fourth, beginning of the fifth century. Uh, we have the, uh, the, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. It's in the British Museum. You can see it under a glass case there. And we have the Codex Vaticanus, which you can see in the Vatican if the Pope lets you see it. Uh, but these, these give us the complete text of those writings and the distance between those writings and the original uh, authors, the distance is uh, bridged almost completely by uh, quotations, lectionary readings, uh, and the like, so that we could virtually reconstruct that stuff if we didn't have those two codices. This is remarkable. And uh, years ago, I debated um, a non-Christian philosopher at University of British Columbia and uh, this gentleman um, said that the uh, New Testament uh, was just worthless. It couldn't give you a picture of Jesus at all. So I went through all of this, and I said, of course you can throw out the New Testament, but before you throw it out, you must discard your entire knowledge of the classical world. <laughs> and the philosopher said, all right, I'll throw out my knowledge of the classical world. <laughs> And the head of the classics department jumped up and said, Good Lord, Avram, not that! <laughs> what would happen to his tenure at the university? You know. uh, well, everyone in the audience saw that this was just a ploy. No one is going to toss out his knowledge of Greco-Roman history simply to get rid of Jesus Christ. But, of course, that's exactly what the philosopher was doing. He was selectively saying, I won't go along with the New Testament even though it's in better shape than the material of the classical world that I cannot help but accept. Now, you don't want to do that sort of thing. If the classical materials are that good uh, and you accept these as a matter of course, you have got to consider the transmissional case for the New Testament as superb, as Kenyon says, the best attested materials of the classical world. All right. Now... How do we know that they were written by the people they claim to be written by? Hmm? That they are not written by drunken monks in the 6th century? There are two lines of argument that are very powerful. These are uh, lines of external argumentation, which of course are much stronger than anything that you can provide in internal uh, argument. Internal argument simply says, do they claim to be written by eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses? And that's obvious in the case of the New Testament. What do you have? You have uh, statements such as uh, uh, John's statements, uh, the one whom we have seen and heard and touched, the very word of life. And you have Thomas touching the nail prints in Jesus' uh, hands and thrusting his hand into his side uh, and so on down the line. There's plenty of internal claim, but the external evidence is especially important. You may or may not realize this, but the Apostle John uh, had students... And the Apostle John lived longer than any of the other apostles. He died uh, around uh, 95 in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is in present-day uh, Turkey, uh, western Turkey. And two of the uh, disciples of John were Polycarp and Papias. That's Papias, uh, 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 Polycarp of Smyrna, uh, and uh, the Papias who became uh, the great historian of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Polycarp was second century in general. His work was done in the second century. And Papias also. Uh, and the uh, work of Papias went into the writing of Eusebius. It was Eusebius whose name is connected with the great ecclesiastical history uh, that recounts the early history of the church uh, and the Council of Nicaea. And Polycarp's material was quoted and used by the foremost theologian of the third century, Irenaeus. Why is this important? Because Polycarp claims to have had contact with John the Apostle, 
And Papias not only uh, points out that, but he points out that uh, Polycarp received from John confirmation that Matthew's gospel was written by Matthew Levi, the tax collector, who was an apostle. Mark's gospel was written by John Mark, uh, the companion of the apostle Peter. Luke's gospel was written by the physician Luke, who accompanied St. Paul on his missionary journeys. And, of course, that John wrote his own gospel. This is remarkable external evidence in behalf of the authorship of those materials. Now, as you might expect, questions have been raised about these arguments. Can we trust Irenaeus concerning Polycarp? Some people have said, oh, uh, Irenaeus was drinking too much at the time. Uh, no, no, but did, did Irenaeus had problems uh, in uh, recording accurately what Polycarp had said? Uh, and a recent work published in Germany uh, by Moore Seebeck uh, has uh, taken care of that kind of, obje of objection. After talking about the objections, uh, this gentleman, uh, Charles E. Hill, uh, says, uh, this theory may now finally be put to rest. Irenaeus' testimony that Polycarp was one of a number of Asian leaders who learned from the Apostle John and even from others known as, as apostles has the support of considerable circumstantial evidence and, and certainly faces no disqualifying counter-evidence. Uh, in other words, it's a good case and the attempts to, uh, to deep-six it uh, simply are not successful. And it has been said over against Papias that Papias talks about the elder John. He uses the term elder rather than the term apostle. And therefore, some liberal theologians have suggested that uh, uh, the, the John that he knew and the John who talked about Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke uh, wasn't the apostle John at all, uh, but uh, somebody wandering around with the title of elder. Okay, that has been taken care of very nicely by uh, Professor Gundry, and he says this, the elder John was the Apostle John. That John, the uh, elder and apostle, makes the Apostle Peter the source of uh, Mark's material and describes the first gospel to the Apostle Matthew. And that isn't too hard to understand, is it? Uh, for example, I, I use a personal illustration. Uh, in England, uh, there are very few professors. At the university where I was a professor, there were only six professors of, in 450 teaching faculty. Okay, Very rare to become a professor in England. So if you have a doctor's degree and you are a professor, you are always referred to in England as professor. But in America, in America, professor is associated with the people who sold patent medicine on the frontier. Cough syrup and that sort of thing, right? Um, highly alkalized. Uh, <clears throat> otherwise, what would they do for the cough? Uh, and uh, so in America, even if one is a professor, one is always addressed as doctor because it's much harder to get a doctor's degree than it is to get a professor professorship at Podunk State Teachers College somewhere. Now, I therefore have two titles. But it's only one Montgomery. It's only one Montgomery. And there's no reason in the world why you can't have the Elder John and the Apostle John as the same person. And you can think of other illustrations that are not as personal as the one I have just given. Here's the second argument in favor of early dating and early authorship of the four Gospels. And this is an argument which was presented by Adolf von Harnack at the end of the 19th century, a great historian. Paul, we know, died in the Neronian persecution, 64-65. The book of Acts records the missionary life and activity of uh, St. Paul. He's the chief character uh, of the book of Acts. But at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is still alive in Rome. You with me? 
it therefore follows that Acts was written before Paul died. Had he already been dead, that fact would have been included. Death is important to a biography. It ends it. (laughs) So, (laughs) the book of Acts was written before 64-65. But the book of Acts is part two of Luke. The same author wrote Acts and Luke. They begin the same way. They're addressed to Theophilus. And the book of Acts says, The former treatise, O Theophilus, I wrote to you concerning all the things Jesus said and did, and so forth. That means that Luke was written before Acts. You with me? At the beginning of Luke, verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter, Luke says that he uh, researched this and worked with existing materials. He followed everything closely from the beginning, and he has provided accurate material concerning Jesus. (coughs) Everybody agrees that one of the sources that he used was Mark. Mark's gospel was one of the sources that Luke used, Uh, and therefore Mark was written before Luke, it is awfully hard to use a source that hasn't yet been written. Now, Jesus was crucified around the year 30. You've got a distance here from 30 to 65, 35-year maximum distance, during which at least two of the synoptic gospels must have been written namely Luke and Mark. And, of course, Matthew ties into this, but that's too complicated to go into here. But that means that these two Gospels, at least, were in circulation whilst eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life were still alive. And that included hostile witnesses, not just uh, the average person who saw certain events uh, of Jesus' career. Now, there is a further corroboration. I will not go into this because of the difficulty of seeing it and the detail and all, but uh, there is an important work done by Richard Balcom entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Balcom uses research on proper names in uh, Israel, uh, in, in Palestine, during the first century when Jesus' ministry took place. Uh, there is a a scholar who has spent her entire life cataloging uh, Jewish names that were employed in different regions at different times uh, in the early Christian era. Um, And uh, Balcom points out that the names that you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels exactly correlate with uh, the research done on names that were employed uh, uh, outside of the Gospels during that same time period. Uh, In other words, there is no way that those uh, Gospel materials could have been written later or faked uh, because that would have required a knowledge of names that that the, the person would not have had. Now, having said this, what we have is solid documents. You say, but what about all of those greasy liberal theologians that I keep coming across uh, who, who say that this stuff is essentially mythical, mythological, and the like? How, how do they possibly present a notion of that kind? The answer is that they practice another discipline called higher criticism not the lower or textual criticism that examines the manuscripts and gets back to the best possible copies. Uh, Not that. Higher criticism is an entirely different breed of cat. And I want to tell you how that works and why it is to be rejected. Higher criticism takes the best text that the lower critic has provided, the best text that is the product of transmissional, internal, and external evidence. And then the higher critic reads the text, and if he finds sudden changes in vocabulary or style, or 
difficult transitions from one uh, subject to another uh, or anything that appears to him out of the ordinary, he says the explanation for this is that this was not written by a single author. It is actually a combination, a potpourri of different materials that have been sloshed together and edited, uh, often clumsily, uh, by somebody. So the, uh, the critic says that in the case of the New Testament, what you really have in the four Gospels are uh, paste-ups. These are paste-ups of all sorts of stuff that was circulating earlier, and uh, somebody uh, or some people uh, pasted the stuff together to make it look like it was a coherent narrative, or four coherent narratives, and slapped the names of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on this stuff. Okay? Uh, this higher critical approach we're going to go into in more detail on Wednesday night for the Old Testament, all right? But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, it was used early in the 20th century on the New Testament by liberals of that era, and they uh, intended to produce the so-called polychrome Bible. This would be a New Testament where the original strands of material were all shown in different colors, so that you could see that really the four Gospels were not written by four single people at all, uh, but were sloshed together from underlying stuff. <laughs> well, it was never published. And the reason was that the, these people couldn't decide among themselves where one strand stopped and another strand picked up. There was no consistency there. And so the Jesus Seminar that is doing this kind of nonsense today meets and they vote with colored balls as to which sayings are definitely Jesus, not very many, uh, which sayings might well be Jesus, not very many, uh, which sayings probably aren't, and, and which sayings definitely are not. And they, they, they vote with colored balls. And so it's very important, if you're interested in this kind of thing, to get a subscription to find out you know, what this month uh, Jesus actually said, because it's not <laughs> going to be the same as last month or, or next month. Okay, what, what is the trouble with this? The trouble with it uh, is, is not, first of all, a spiritual trouble. I mean, certainly these people have serious spiritual difficulties. Huh? But the primary problem with this thing is that it is dreadful scholarship because it is entirely subjective. It is entirely subjective. The critic reads the best text and the critic says, Ah, change in vocabulary, change in style, change in logical order. This is not the way a single author would have done it. That is translated as, if I had written this, I would not have written it that way. But that's why God didn't choose higher critics to write the Bible. <laughs> he wanted to do it his way. As, as <clears throat> To, uh, to quote Frank Sinatra, yes, 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 yes. And here are a couple of confirmations of what we've just been saying. The first comes from a historian's guide to computing, which can hardly be considered a theological work. A collection of newspaper articles and an autobiographical account, all by the same author, may differ considerably in their uh, uh, measurable uh, style. Clearly then, stylistic analyses are fallible and cannot provide positive identification of a text authorship or literary heritage. And of course, this is perfectly obvious. Take your term papers and your love letters. If they have the same style either you will never graduate or you will never get married or both. <laughs> now, I quote Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers on the origins of Sherlockian higher criticism. My wife and I are members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, by the way. Uh, and uh, it so happens that Dorothy Sayers has this to say in her work, Unpopular Opinions. 
the game of applying the methods of the higher criticism to the Sherlock Holmes canon was begun many years ago by Monsignor Ronald Knox with the aim of showing that by those methods one could disintegrate a modern classic as speciously as a certain school of critics have endeavored to disintegrate the Bible. That's very profound. Wherever higher criticism has been used, the result has been disintegration of literature, not an understanding of literature. And now, finally, the artistic part of the evening. Yes, for those of you who are tender-minded and who have been appalled by all of this scholarship so far, uh, we have uh, a respite for you, a respite. You may or may not realize this, but the same point I've just been making about higher criticism applies in spades in the area of artistic activity. That is to say, major museums throughout the world have been conned into buying uh, reproductions uh, and uh, art objects, paintings and the like, not authentic Uh, in terms of their origins because so-called art experts have uh, talked about the consistent style of the painter or artist. They have uh, convinced uh, the uh, committees that uh, pay out uh, tons of money uh, for art objects for major museums uh, that, of course, Object X is by the great artist. It is not in any way uh, a falsification. Ho, ho, ho. I am going to give you a few examples because these examples are exactly the kind of thing that the higher critics of the New Testament should be paying attention to. All right. Uh, We have Seostratis III statue. The question is, was this 12th century or 13th, uh, 12th dynasty or 13th dynasty, uh, the Egyptian dynasties? And uh, as a result of not doing proper examination of the materials of this and simply trying to base it on style, the end result was that (laughs) uh, there was a legal case in France which resulted in a, 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 a successful suit of a million euros, a million euros on this. Uh, then we have the so-called <coughs> Tête Bleue. Uh, the Tête Bleue is a, a statue in blue in color, uh, which the Louvre had for 80 years, and everybody thought it was the cat's meow. Hmm? Uh, and uh, then it was subjected to a materials test and discovered uh, to be a fabrication. Eighty years, simply because people relied on subjective stylistic considerations instead of on objective scientific uh, issues. And this is especially fun because you are not too far away from the Getty Museum, I understand. Uh, The Getty Museum has paid out uh, an absolutely staggering amount of money for fakes, for fakes. Hmm. And I much enjoy giving you the details about this, which I am now going to do. Getty Museum sues over two and a half million fake, a phony, a phony Achilles head. <laughs> California's Getty Museum is suing a Paris art dealer in the French courts to get back the two and a half million it paid for what was supposed to be a marble by the fourth century sculptor Scopus. And the reason for this was that the, uh, the, the expert uh, said, oh, just, just look at those lines. Only Scopus could have done a thing like that. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> it was subjected to scientific examination. wasn't by that particular uh, gentleman at all. Hmm. And in the artistic realm, we have uh, instances where, for example, paintings by the Renaissance artist Andrea della Robbia uh, have uh, turned out not to be by him at all. Hmm? Uh, And uh, the reason that they were accepted is that uh, there are uh, allegedly four characteristics that will absolutely identify uh, in Andrea della Robbia a painting. Uh, the, the people will, will be in, in brilliant white. That's a symbol of purity. 
the background will be blue. That's a symbol of paradise. Uh, and there will be a frieze of branches of fruit. That's a symbol of celebration. And there will be a, a little symbol of, of, of red for the passion of Christ. And so uh, perfectly stupid art critics have taken criteria like that and have attempted to identify the difference between the genuine and, and the fake. Ho, ho, ho. The final artistic work of Leonardo da Vinci has a style so different from his earlier work that no one in the world on a stylistic basis would have considered it by da Vinci, and yet we know it was. <clears throat> also, we have these uh, grand instances of uh, artistic fraud, where this thing is done uh, with, uh, with, with intent. And uh, I, I think that I should tell you about just one of these gentlemen, all right? What I'd really like to do is to give you the history of certain Harvard higher critics, but I don't want a defamation suit uh, at this point, all right? This is John Myatt. Uh, John Myatt began as uh, an imitator, and he did wonderful imitations. And at the beginning, he certainly was not trying to cheat anybody. Uh, but <clears throat> a gentleman by the name of John Drua, or Drew, uh, came to him. Initially, initially, Myatt was honest about the nature of his paintings. But Drua, a regular customer, was able to resell some of his paintings as genuine works. When he later told Myatt that Christie's, the great art house, had accepted his Albert Iglesias painting as genuine and paid 25,000 pounds, Myatt became a willing accomplice to Drua's fraud and began to paint more pictures in the style of masters like uh, uh, Bissière, uh, Marc Chagall, Le Corbusier, uh, Jean Dubuffet, uh, 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 Matisse. Uh, he, he had a, a, a wide, wide artistic interest. Uh, he, he wasn't limited at all in the choice of, of paintings. Well, this was ultimately discovered. They both went to jail, of course, but the, my point in all of this is that you cannot allow uh, subjective considerations to determine issues of authorship. Uh, authorship is something that's got to depend upon the kind of solid evidence that we've been talking about tonight. Uh, and I, I give you some Mondrian, by the way. Uh, it's not too difficult to forge this stuff, incidentally. <laughs> I, I, have, I, have, I have wondered if possibly with lowering uh, incomes for scholars, I could consider uh, a sideline. Uh, but I, I've rejected that, yes. This one especially. By the way, there are these Mondrian all over the place, including uh, in Texas. Uh, uh, but they're not by Mondrian because it's so easy to fabricate the stuff if style is going to be your only criterion. Yes, this one is in the uh, uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Be sure to go there and see it. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> not too far away. Yeah. And not half as interesting as Strasbourg. Yes. All right. Now, we are back to our outline Point number two, you'll recall, has to do with the picture of Jesus in these solid documents, uh, the value of which we've established. What picture does Jesus present of himself, and what picture do the uh, eyewitnesses uh, give of him? Now, this is going to be very easy for you because you've got uh, a knowledge of the New Testament. And so uh, this is going to come along and doesn't require much ranting and raving on my part. The ranting and raving will uh, continue tomorrow night when we get into the legal areas. All right. Uh, Jesus claims to be no less than God Almighty come to earth. Right? Uh, John 14, 8 and 9. Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. These are Orthodox Jews. For them, there's only one God. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, nothing could be clearer than that. Uh, and you can go to, uh, of course, uh, this, uh, Jesus' statement 
uh, also in John, before Abraham was, I am. Huh? Uh, his pre-existence. All right? Or at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, was with God, the Word was God. And if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says there's no definite article there uh, in, uh, in the Greek, by the way, they don't know Greek. They don't know Greek. And their, their, uh, their interlinear was translated by someone uh, who could not have successfully ordered a hamburger at McDonald's in Athens. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Anyway, anyway, the definite article is employed in other parallel situations. It's just that when the word order is reversed in Greek, the predicate is ahead of the subject, that carries definiteness. This is Colwell's rule, uh, that, but you'd have to know some Greek in order to know that. Now, if someone says, ah, but that's the Gospel of John, that's the theological Gospel, what about the, the simple Jesus of the synoptic Gospels? What about that? Well, uh, if you go to Mark, the earliest Gospel, the, f- uh, the first miracle Jesus performs is the healing of the paralytic. Right? Paralytic is lower down from the roof, and uh, Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins be forgiven. And the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, mumble, who can forgive sin but God only? Does Jesus say, oops, oops, slip of the tongue? Uh, I, I meant, of course. You know. uh, no, Jesus says, <coughs> which is it easier to say? Your sins be forgiven or take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's the apocalyptic uh, figure of the Son of Man who's coming at the end of the age to, uh, to roll up history that you get in Daniel and Ezekiel, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. You see the logic of this? They couldn't see whether the sins were forgiven but they could see whether Jesus had power to, uh, to heal him, to heal the paralysis. And so uh, Jesus heals the paralysis to show them that he is the divine Messiah having the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sin. Right? That's at the very beginning of the earliest gospel. Or go to the end of Matthew, the trial. Jesus is before the high priest, and the high priest says, are you the one? Uh, and the uh, King James translation sounds equivocal. Thou sayest, but the Greek there is, you said it. <laughs> you said it. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with all the heavenly host. And the high priest says, what need do we have for further witnesses? He blasphemes. The high priest saw that this was a claim to deity. All right, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is there is no way to get out of a divine picture of Jesus in the New Testament. That is the only historical picture available. Either he was that or he wasn't. And when we get together tomorrow night, we're going to look at the witnesses as we would in a court of law, and we are going to check out the attesting event that is critical to prove Jesus' deity, namely his resurrection from the dead. Thank you.